At this time, congregation, we would direct your attention to a reading from the Word of God from Romans 2. We'll begin reading this morning at verse 25 and then continue through verse 2 of chapter 3. So we'll be reading from Romans 2, beginning at verse 25, and then continuing through the second verse of chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, you can find this selection on page 1,295. 1,295. The Apostle Paul is continuing his argument, so to speak, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He has identified the reality of the universality of sin, that all human beings have fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore in and of themselves, by their own sinful nature, uh, are justly condemned uh, underneath the wrath of God. But he's also moving to the pointing out of another righteousness, an alien righteousness, uh, that is gifted by grace and by mercy uh, to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So we begin reading at verse 25 of chapter 2. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if any uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God." And then these next two verses are the verses that we'll especially be paying attention to this morning. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Thus far for this morning, our reading from the Word of Scripture. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you reflect for just a mere moment on what has transpired so far this morning in our worship service, uh, we saw the, the waters of baptism being administered or applied to the forehead of an infant. So what? And I don't mean that in a trite, sacrilegious type of a way, but so what? What does baptism really mean? What is the significance of it? You'll notice if you listen carefully to the questions that are presented to the parents, it's emphasized that baptism is not to be done merely, only, out of some type of custom, some type of generational practice, like, you know, dressing up small children in in Dutch outfits for the tulip time parade. It's not that we just step back and go, oh, isn't that cute? I was baptized, my my parents were baptized, my grandparents were baptized, and now my children are baptized. Nor is baptism to be done simply out of some type of superstition, believing in some type of automatic dispension of grace that flows out of the actual element of the water that, by the way, boys and girls, is just gotten from the tap from the the faucet, 
in and of itself, that that water isn't anything different than the water that you use at home. So what is the significance of baptism? So what? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question by saying there's very, very great significance much significance, especially because to those who find themselves in the administration of the covenant of grace, there is the commitment of the oracles of God. And so I want to take the opportunity this morning to consider this theme, the profit, you might think of the advantage, the the benefit, the blessing, those would all be synonymous words, but we're sticking with the biblical language that we have here, the prophet of being born into the covenant. And by covenant, we mean here a, a pact or an, an agreement between two parties, including promises and obligations that is intended to result in a life of peaceful fellowship. We also speak of the covenant of grace because this relationship is established not based on merit You don't earn your way into the covenant of grace. You don't work your way into the covenant of grace. You don't climb your way into the covenant of grace. But God, in his free mercy and in his free kindness, is pleased to establish a unique relationship with believers. Think of Abraham and their children, the seed of Abraham. As we look at this theme this morning, the prophet of being born into the covenant, we'll notice, first of all, the question of the prophet, and then secondly, the description of the prophet, and then thirdly, the response to the prophet. So the question, the description, and the response to the prophet. The first of all, then, the question of the prophet, given covenant status and given previous truths. In the Old Testament and in the early New Testament, the, the Jew or the, the, the member of the nation of Israel, the, the, the ethnic Jew, was a member of what we're going to call the administration of the covenant of grace, the historical administration of the covenant of grace, so that the Jewish people had a unique, a special, a privileged relationship with the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Lord God had been pleased to establish this unique relationship with Israel, as we see, for example, in Romans 9, verse 4. There the Apostle Paul mentions the Israelites, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. And he says concerning the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the covenants. The the Gentiles in the Old Testament were were not included in the administration of the historical covenants. It was the Jewish people. It was the Israelites. And I want you to turn this morning back to Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, because I want to be clear in the basis for the Lord establishing this unique relationship with the Israelites or, or with the Jewish people was not... It was not based upon anything in them themselves. So Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, the Lord is explaining to the Israelites his motivation for establishing this wonderful, unique relationship with them, for giving them 
uh, this covenant. And he says in Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 6 through 8, For you are a holy people, a a chosen people, a set-apart people, a unique people, a peculiar people. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. Now notice the language, to be. Not because you are, but to be. So the end is in the design. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now notice verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. Because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You notice what the Lord is saying. The Lord is saying to the Israelites, I didn't choose you because I saw how great you were. Because I saw how wonderful you were. Because I saw how powerful, how mighty you were. I chose you because I love you. And I've made a promise to your fathers. And and what this does, and why I'm pausing here to stress this, this has radical implications for how we respond. Because if we begin to think, like the Israelites sadly thought, well, the Lord chose us because we're better than everyone else, extreme arrogance will come about a people. Extreme self-reliance will come about a people. And that's exactly what many of the Israelites fell into, this, this covenantal presumption. Well, of course the Lord chose us. Why, we're the Pharisees. We're the Sadducees. We're the scribes. We're the experts in the law. We're the ones who keep the traditions. We're the ones who do this, that, and the other thing. The spirit of the individual who entered into the temple and said, Oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. Well, here's my list of things that I do. But the Lord chose his people because he loved them. And he made a promise a covenant promise. And this reality was signified and symbolized in the Old Testament dispensation with a peculiar mark, a peculiar sign, that of circumcision. Now given the the, the patriarchal emphasis of the Old Testament, this sign was unique uh, to the male members of the covenant community, but the sign, of course, was to all of the members of the covenant community. But the Apostle Paul then also has emphasized a few truths prior to Romans 3, verses 1 and 2. What about the universal condemnation of all humanity? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this sentence of condemnation rests upon Jew and Gentile alike. 
Uh, You see this, for example, in Romans 2, verses 5 through 11. We won't read the entirety. Uh, You can just note it. Uh, But verse 5, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Perhaps uh, there's a more concise summary in Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we, Paul is speaking as a a representative of the covenant community, uh, as as a Jew, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. The Apostle Paul has also emphasized that the real essence of this covenant relationship is that of a spiritual relationship. Yes, the external sign and seal is important, but only as it points to the internal reality. And the internal reality is the spiritual transformation that, that, that comes through regeneration or through the new birth, through a union with Christ, with a union with Christ in, in His death and also with His resurrection. So we must always appreciate the external sign and seal of the covenant. We must always appreciate the water of baptism, but to properly appreciate the waters of baptism, we must look to what they point to. And that is, of course, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as personally applied to an individual through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Apostle Paul, he reflects upon the covenant status in light of his previous truths, and he asks the question, what then is the benefit? What then is the profit of being in the covenant community? of having this unique relationship. And that's in our second point, the description of the prophet. Just notice uh, the words in verse 2 of Romans 3, much in every way. Now, many of you, as you go about your daily vocational labors, uh, you're, you're interested, rightly so, with profit margins and with sharpened pencils, figuratively speaking, or perhaps literally speaking, Uh, You crunch the numbers, uh, you add up all of the inputs and uh, the outputs, and you draw the bottom line. What's the profit? That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's drawing that bottom line. He's saying, okay, now what is the profit? Much. Much profit. Great profit. Congregation, and I want to speak especially to the young people of this congregation, there is great, great, great profit in being a part of the covenant community of the Lord. Do not despise your birthright. Do not minimize the wonderful blessings that are yours because of God's goodness because of His mercy, because of His grace, because of His love. But what is this prophet? It is chiefly the oracles of God. Verse 2, much in every way. Chiefly, firstly, foremost, because to them, to the Israelites in the Old Testament, 
But now to all those who are included in the historical administration of the covenant of grace, to them are committed, are given, are deposited the, the oracles of God. Now, what is an oracle? You, you could say it's, it's the Word of God. To you and to me, especially. Now, I understand you can go anywhere and you can purchase a copy of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, you can go on the internet and, and you can find copies of the Holy Scriptures. Now, there are some languages, there are some tribes, there are some nations who do not have access to the Word of God in their own languages, and so the church labors on bringing the Word of God to the nations uh, through translations, through missionary labors. But especially within the covenant community, to us is given the Word of God. We have the special revelation uh, of God. There is the, the general revelation in the realm of creation that goes forth to all humanity, testifying of the, the power, the grandeur of our God. But in the Word of God, in the canonical Scriptures, we especially have our Lord coming to us and speaking to us. And this is ultimately the, the very heartbeat of a relationship, is it not? Communication, speaking. And our Lord comes to us and He says, I am going to deposit my Word. I'm going to give my Word. I'm going to entrust my Word to you, my covenant people. And you can think of what a wonderful gift this is because the Word of God is able to make one wise unto salvation. We always have to remember the primary purpose of the Word of God is not just some proverbial sayings to put on our mirror to motivate us in the morning. I mean, you can do that, but that's not the primary purpose of the Word of God. Just some little text pulled out of context, pasted somewhere. But rather, it is to show us the way of salvation, the way of reconciliation with God. This is what the Apostle Paul says when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. These oracles, these words are able to make you wise for salvation. Now notice how through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. How, how do we come to know who Jesus Christ is? Through the oracles of the Word of God. How do we come to know what Jesus Christ has done? Through the Word of God. And that's why Paul would remind Timothy, Timothy, you learn these things on the lap of your mother and on the lap of your grandmother. And for many of us, that's, that was true of us also. Do you remember the first time you, you learned who Jesus Christ was, for the vast majority of us, I dare say you don't remember. Why don't you remember? Because you were most likely just an infant. Most likely just a toddler. And as you were continually exposed through the parental instruction, through the influence of grandparents, maybe even great-grandparents, you came to know the simple gospel message, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the Holy Spirit was pleased to work faith in your heart so that you embraced that reality and that promise. What profit is there in baptism? What profit is there in this 
significant relationship with our Lord? Much. Because He's given us His Word that includes His promises. This is the center focus of all of Scripture. This is what is picked up in Acts 2, verse 39, uh, when Peter, and this also, by the way, shows that although the nature of the sign transitions from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Testament sign, of course, was a bloody sign. Much blood was shed in the Old Testament, but now blood has been shed once and for all in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the sign, the visible sign in the New Testament is a bloodless sign because the blood has been shed once and for all. So there's a transition in the nature of the sign, but the promise is the same in the Old and in the New. The promise is the same uh, to Isaac, for example, as it was to Timothy. And what is that promise? It's that which is said in Acts 2, verse 39. The promises to you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God. And in essence, that promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we will have a relationship of covenantal fellowship. And this is why when you go to the conclusion of our canon, to Revelation 21, uh, when it says they're triumphantly the declaration, it is finished. God dwells with His people. Tabernacles among them in this wonderful relationship of peace and of fullness and of wholeness. And included, of course, in this promise is the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. And it's all bound up in the mediator and boys and girls, a mediator is someone who goes in between two parties, two persons who are at opposition and accomplishes peace. So by nature, because of our sin, we are at odds with God. By nature, we are rebels. We are enemies of God. But thanks be to God that God in His grace has appointed Jesus Christ as a mediator to bring about a peaceful reconciliation between those two parties, between myself and between my God. Not by getting God to relax something of His righteousness and getting me to somehow improve myself a bit morally so that we, myself and God, we, we kind of meet in the middle. That's not the way this works. That's not the gospel. But the gospel is that God has appointed Jesus Christ as a mediator to come and to assume my nature, my human nature, through the incarnation so that the eternal Son of God, while retaining His full divinity, He doesn't stop being God, He also takes a very real human nature, including a body like mine, including a soul like mine, made, the author of the Hebrew says, like unto us in all points with one major exception, he has no sin. So he's the sinless substitute. And he comes and he obtains this peaceful reconciliation by taking upon himself all of my guilt, all of my sin, and definitively nailing it to the cross. Where are my sins? Oh, I know that I have sins, but where are they when it comes to the judicial forensic question? They're nailed to the cross once and for all. So on the basis of that accomplishment of redemption, there is the declaration of justification 
fully righteous. Based upon the work of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we could echo a question of the Apostle Paul, what shall we say to these things? There is much profit, chiefly in that we have been given the Word of God, the promises of God. And in our third point, the response to the prophet, two practical responses, of course these are interconnected, is a use of the Scriptures and a belief in the promises. What is the prophet? Much. To us has been committed the Word of God. This is the greatest gift. This is the most profitable inheritance that God has given us His Word. Use it. Use it personally. Read it, study it, know it. I'm not thinking of any examination in particular. At our classes meetings, many of you well know when, when a man is on the path towards ordination into the ministry, having completed his seminary training, there, there comes the initial exam, the candidacy exam, and one of the areas in which a man is examined is Bible knowledge. And again, I stress, I am not thinking of any one particular exam, but numerous, numerous times over the, the past two decades that I have attended upon these exams, there's the comment made, and we're talking now about seminary-trained Men, the comment is made, well, the weakest section was Bible knowledge. That's an indictment upon us. I've heard college professors in Christian institutions bemoan how little Bible knowledge incoming students have. We have time for everything else, it seems. But what about our Bibles? And you can add to it, it is disturbing. When in corporate worship services of the church, the majority of the time is given to something other than the reading and expounding of the Word of God. We have been given a deposit. This alone is able to make us wise unto salvation. Now, I, I readily understand that there are other necessary elements within a corporate worship service. I'm not denying that. I would also hasten to say that there are many innovations, human innovations, that have been added to those biblical elements, and those ought to be done away with immediately. But the primary focus in corporate worship must be upon the oracles of God. And, and, and what we call expository preaching. What is preaching? Preaching is not some gifted communicator standing behind a pulpit just giving his insights on 
various areas of life. That is not preaching. Preaching is not some encouraging, motivating, go get them now. I know maybe last week didn't go so well, but Monday's a new start. You've got the world by the tail type of mentality. That's not preaching. What is preaching? Preaching is the, the foolish exercise of a man who is characterized as being a mere clay pot with much fear and with much trepidation, but underneath this solemn responsibility that God has called him to proclaim a message, and he goes and he opens up the Word of God, and he reads that Word of God, and he expounds, he explains that Word of God. And he does so with humility, but also with a measure of confidence and calls people to respond to that Word of God by believing in the promises of the gospel. And that's the second aspect of how we respond to this prophet. It is by belief in the promises, a personal belief, a personal belief that includes, yes, a a certain experiential knowledge, but also this hearty trust, this hearty reliance. And, And you find this woven all throughout the examples of preaching that we have, especially in the book of Acts. What does the Apostle Peter do? What does the Apostle Paul do? They go into a city. Most of the time they begin at the synagogue, the gathering place for the Jews. What was the the main object that was in the synagogue? The scrolls. You can find this in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus Christ himself goes into the synagogue. What's the thing that he does on the Sabbath day in the synagogue? He asks for the scrolls and he reads from the scrolls. And so also Peter and so also Paul. And after they would read from the Scriptures, they would then expound. They would give a sermon that focused entirely upon who Jesus Christ was and what He had done. And then they would turn, so to speak, to the people and they would say, now believe. Now trust. And that's also my closing application to us this morning. What is the prophet of baptism, of the covenant relationship? Much, much prophet. The first aspect of that prophet to you and to me have been committed the oracles of God which are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe? Not just in a superstitious ritual or a traditional custom or a certain conservative lifestyle. Do you believe casting all of your trust, hope, confidence, reliance upon the substitutionary mediatorial work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? If you don't, then I need to remind you that many of the Israelites also did not believe. And 1 Corinthians 10 talks about them that their bodies lied wasted in the wilderness because they didn't have faith in the oracles of God. They didn't have faith in the promises of God. And if these words find the ears and more importantly the heart of someone who's still not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, I lovingly but also urgently remind you today is a day of grace, but I can make no promises about tomorrow. 
I don't know if I'll see another day, and you don't know if you'll see another day. There will come a time when we've had our last Sunday, when we've sat underneath the preaching for the last time, when we've heard the gospel proclaimed for the last time. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, but believe, because the promise, the promise to all who believe is the promise of the forgiveness of sins and of life everlasting, of dwelling in the celestial city for all of eternity around the throne of the Lamb. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the benefits, for the the privileges that are ours, especially that You have been pleased to give unto us Your Word. Lord, give us wisdom. Uh, Give us the desire to feast upon Your Word. Also, give us understanding that we might not just see words printed on a page, but that we might see the revelation of our triune Lord God and also the expression of your covenant promises. And as we see them, may we receive them in the exercise of faith. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.